All praises to the Most High, Yahuwah, and His Son, Yahusha. I am Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is the Pastor Richard Washington, and we are the Signs of the Covenant. And I want to say Shalawan Shabbat. So, if you know, we the Pastor just started a new series on the Science of the Sacrifice, talking about how Yah's sacrifice is a science from the from the Scriptures. We want you to tune in. Because he's going to be very interesting. I know I say this a lot, but it's always interesting the things that he brings out in Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, let's get ready for a new teaching. If while the podcast is going on, you have any questions or comments, uh, please feel free to either one message us in the chat or email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com science of the covenant at gmail.com and we will try to get to your question or comment on air if it's after this has aired live we will get to it on the next podcast so pastor the science of the sacrifice what are you going to be teaching us today okay what we're about to do is to take off where we left off last week and what we were trying to show is that the science of the sacrifice, which we call sacroology, which is a study of the sacrifice. Often in Christendom, all over, people have talked about the sacrifice, but they have not really gone into the essence and how the sacrifice came to be, came came about. And so we want to kind of dwell into uh, the science of the sacrifice in a way that we can see how it came about, what was involved in it, and also how to make the application in our lives. So this is where we're going with that. And I believe it was last week we looked at two questions and one of the questions was, when Elohim got ready to make the sacrificial system, was he alone when he made a system, or was somebody with him? And we looked at both of the possibilities that if he made the plan of salvation by himself, eventually, when his son came along, somewhere back in eternity, he must have discussed it with his son as well. So whether he was alone to get it together or whether someone was with him, we know that when the individual in whom he discussed it with, they were a part of it as well, and we know that to be Yeshua, his son. And so what we want to do is continue from that narrative uh, to the the part that we want to discuss today. And this part of our topic of the 
science of the sacrifice, we will entitle it the sacrificial conception, the sacrificial conception. Let us pray. Our loving Father, as we look again into the scriptures of the great plan of salvation that you have conceived of, that we may go into it in such a way that we can see how you had a hand in it even before it was instituted in this world. So we would ask your divine guidance to him who presents it and those who listen, that they may too be able to discern and to understand not only the conception, but how you implemented it and how you were able to make a way for us where we sin to come back to you. These blessings we ask in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen, amen. and amen. amen. So we want to look at the sacrificial conception. And <clears throat> what we notice in scriptures concerning the sacrifice is that before it was introduced to our world, it was both thought up and thought out. And this we know because the Bible speaks about it by the implications and by the specifications. So we want to look, we want to consider these two uh, aspects, the implications and the specifications. So when we talk about the sacrificial implications, we are talking about looking into the scriptures and see where it was implied. It may not come out explicitly and say something, but it is implied. And so we want to look at some of the implications first. And when we consider that Yah uh, has given in the scriptures some implications, then we'll be able to make some discernment about the conception of the plan of redemption. So let us turn to chapter 3 in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. And we want to consider verse 21. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 says, He said, Unto Adam and also to his wife did Yah Elohim make coats of skins and clothe them. Now when we consider that Yah made coats of skins for Adam and his wife after they had transgressed his covenant, what was his what was his need for clothing them with coats of skins? Why would he do this? No doubt this clothing was in an act of redemption by which he was putting into action his sacrificial system. Did he just think of doing this when they transgressed, or was it a thought or was it thought of beforehand? And I would think that what he did in clothing them was thought out previously to them making a breach in the covenant. Now, the reasoning behind Yah having already given some thought to what he did in clothing them is because he wanted to cover their shame when the light of his glory had departed. Moreover, when Yah gave to Adam his covenant, concerning him not eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the consequences if he ate. Now let us turn to Genesis chapter 2, and we want to look at verses 15 through 17. Now when we look at 
Genesis 2, 15 to 17, notice what it says. It says, And Yah Elohim took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress and to keep it. And Yah Elohim commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Okay, so when we look at these verses, it wasn't like Yah had to scratch his head after Adam and Eve <clears throat> had eaten that which was forbidden and say to himself, I wonder what I should do. No, no, just the opposite. He had already made plans to be able to redeem the fallen couple in their transgression. Yah himself instituted his sacrificial system immediately by clothing Adam and his wife with coats of skin. Now, how could he clothe them in skin other than slaying an animal? If he slew an animal to clothe our first parents, would not this strongly imply that he was operating from a previous plan he himself had set up? The clothing of them with the skins was an act of redemption. It pointed out to them that when they broke his covenant, he made provisions for them to be redeemed. And when Yah's covenant was broken by the once holy couple, the wages of sin was death. Read that in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It talks about the wages of sin being death. Now, either the death of the covenant breaker or that of the covenant giver. In other words, when you make a covenant, a covenant be can be between two individuals or three or more. But when a covenant is made, you have both the covenant maker and the covenant uh, and, and the person who accepts the covenant. So, uh, when a covenant is made, it is made with someone else. So when Elohim made the covenant, he made it with Adam. And the covenant that he made with him was that if you eat, you have to eat of all of the trees of the garden, but one tree you cannot eat, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, if you ate of that tree, you would die. So when a covenant was broken, either the death of the covenant breaker or the death of the covenant giver. So in Adam and Eve's case, they were the covenant breakers. And the covenant giver was Elohim. So by the covenant giver providing means to redeem the transgressors meant that he wasn't willing for them to die, but rather that he instead would die in their place. Therefore, he pledged to give himself a ransom. Now, the Hebrew word for ransom is the word kofer. It's spelled K-O-P-H-E-R, kofer. Now, the Hebrew word kofer it carries the meaning, it means to cover. Kofa means to cover. 
So when Yah clothed Adam and Eve, he was covering them, and by covering them, he was atoning for them because when you look up the word atonement, it has similar meaning as the word kofer. As a matter of fact, they are spelled similarly. Now, when you look up the word atonement in Hebrew, it is a word kephar, okay, kephar. Now, when you look up the word kofar, which means a ransom to cover, it is spelled K-O-P-H-E-R. But then when you look up the word atonement, it is spelled K-A-P-H-A-R. The only thing that is different between kofar and kephar is the vowels. Kofar has an, an O and an E. But the word kephar has two A's as the vowels but the consonants are all the same. So the word kofer means to cover. The word atonement means to cover. So when Elohim put those skins upon them after having slain an animal, he was giving them the atonement. He was covering them. Now that he had covered them by slaying an animal sacrifice, he was initiating the sacrificial system upon this earth with his first human creatures. Once having both instituted and initiated the sacrificial system, this leads to our second implication. Okay, let us look at the second implication. As I said, an implication is just simply something that states something, but it doesn't give the full impact, but it's implying that it's there. So the second implication deals with the sacrificial system itself. Once the system was put into action, would he <clears throat> be thinking this up as he proceeds with it? I think not. When he says to the fallen couple, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So now, when we read, read that in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we notice some hatred that is going on here, okay? Now, when we look at Genesis 3, 15, interesting, interestingly, this verse appears to be giving us some information that would be too, too in-depth and well thought out to be something that was done on the spare of the moment. In other words, what we're trying to establish is that when this sacrificial system came to earth, it was something that he had already thought about even before it happened. Now, let us consider this verse from the content it offers to us that would strongly suggest that Yah's plan of salvation was not a random thought process, nor was it an afterthought whereby he came up with the idea by chance. In other words, what he did was not by chance. What he did was by design. So let's, let's read that verse again, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The Bible said, And I will put enmity, in other words, I will put hatred between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, 
and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. So here in, in, in Genesis 3.16, it's talking about a hatred between the serpent and the woman, and a hatred between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In this text, there are some factors which, when we consider, would nullify and void the idea that the plan of redemption was some arbitrary or capricious act. In this text, there are some factors which it appears to address, which leads to a purposeful design of the plan of salvation, which was laid out prior to it being brought into existence. There are, there are some things that we need to look at in this text to prepare to see that, see the point that he prepared the plan before it came in, it came about. First, we observe that Yah says, I would put enmity between thee and the woman. Now, here we are told that Yah would put hatred between thee and the woman. So, who is the thee and who is the woman in this text? So we want to look at that. Who is the thee and who is the woman? Obviously, the thee is talking about the serpent. Now let us turn <clears throat> let let us turn to Genesis. <clears throat> uh, well, I tell you what, what we'll do, we'll look at we in order to verify that the thee is talking about the serpent. We we have at least two verses. Now, in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, it said, And Yah Elohim said unto the serpent, so we know that the serpent is involved. He said, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy, thy life. So when you look at 14 in conjunction with verse 15, when it says, I will put enmity between thee, the thee that is talking about is the serpent. Okay. Now, we also know that the cursed serpent is identified with Satan. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. Revelation 12, 9. <clears throat> now, here in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, it identifies a number of the names in which uh, the serpent is referred to because he was the serpent was being used by by Satan. Now in Revelation 12 9 it says, and the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent. Okay, so you see, when you talk about the devil, they call him the dragon. And then they call him the old serpent when he was in the Garden of Eden. And then he's called the devil. And he's also called Satan. So we know that in Genesis 3.15, when it talks about thee, it is actually talking about Satan, who used the serpent. So the serpent is identified with Satan. At this juxtaposition, I asked the question, if the serpent was cursed for deceiving the woman into partaking of that which was forbidden, then our question would be, why was the serpent cursed? Why was the serpent cursed? 
Let us probe into this question. If we ponder why the serpent was cursed, then what is it that brings about a curse? How can you get a curse? Now, in the covenant Yah made with Adam, he commanded him saying, well, let's look at it together. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And let's, let's see what the covenant was. Genesis chapter 2. And we want to look at again at verses 16 through 17. Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17. All right. Now, let's look at it. It said, And Yah Elohim commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So what he is saying here, he's given Adam a covenant. And this covenant, no doubt Adam discussed with Eve once she had come into existence. But this is the covenant. So the Bible says here in verse number 16, it said, And Yah Elohim commanded the man. Hmm. He said he commanded the man. All right. Well, if he commanded him, saying, Of every tree which is in the garden thou shalt freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, let us now paraphrase what is being said. He is saying to Adam, if you obey my command, and in verse 15 it does say, in verse 16 of the second chapter of Genesis, it does say he commanded the man. He said, that's what he said, he commanded it. And if he is, <clears throat> if he is saying that he commanded the man, he said, you will be blessed and live. So he is saying to Adam, if you obey my command, you will be blessed and live. However, if you disobey my command, you will be cursed and die. So what we are examining is what brings about life and death. So when we deal with a covenant, a covenant is dealing with life and death. And so when we deal with life and death, there's a premise by which Elohim is established to bring about life. And there's a premise that he is established to bring about death. If Adam and Eve were obedient to Yah's command, they would be blessed with life. If they were disobedient to his command, they would be cursed with death. Life is blessed if we are obedient to his command Life is cursed if we are disobedient to his command. To keep his command is to be blessed with life. To break his command is to be cursed with death. What brings about blessing is the keeping of Yah's command. What brings about cursing is the breaking of Yah's command. So the basis of a blessing or a curse is either the keeping or the breaking of his command. The basis of having the blessings of life is to keep the commandments. So what we are seeing here, the reason why the curse came upon the serpent is because he was in violation of a command. 
He may not have done the same thing that Adam and Eve did, but he nevertheless went against a command because when you go against a command, that's when the bless that's when the cursing comes. If you're obedient to the command, then you would be be blessed. So now, when we consider the fact that the serpent was going to be cursed, we are looking at the fact that even before Satan or the serpent was created, Elohim had already made a plan of salvation that if they obeyed, they would live. But the other side of the coin is that if you disobey, you would die. That was not something that when they did it, all of a sudden Elohim just jumped up and made a plan. No, that plan was already in existence. And what we're trying to establish as we deal with the sacrifice is that uh, Elohim did not do this thing at random. He merely had already planned that if they are obedient, this is what would happen. But if they were disobedient, this is what would also happen. So now let us turn into the book of Matthew, continuing with the same thought that we have here. Life can be blessed if we obey. Life can be cursed if we disobey. Okay, now here in Matthew chapter 19, and in Matthew chapter 19, we want to start with verse 16, and we want to read through 17. Okay, the 19th chapter of the book of Matthew. Now, here's what it says, starting with the 16th verse. The Bible tells us, it said, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Okay, so this person who came to Yeshua want to know, how can I have eternal life? Now, let us stop to pause a little bit. Let us just park here for just a little while to look and see what he's saying. He said he wanted eternal life. He's, he said, what should I do? Now, let us rewind the tape and go all the way back to Garden of Eden. Isn't this the same thing that Elohim is saying in his covenant with Adam and Eve, that if you obey, you would live, and if you disobey, you're going to die? So in other words, he was saying, if you obey and live, if you do my command, and you will have eternal life. He was promising Adam and Eve eternal life way back then. And so when Yeshua had come on the scene of action, here was this person asking him, what should I do for eternal life? And Yeshua says in verse 17, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is Elohim, but if thou will enter to life, keep the commandments. So here Yeshua said, you want to get eternal life? You want to enter to life? He said, keep the commandments. You see, when this person came to Yeshua, he said unto him, good master. And Yeshua said, mm, why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, and that is Elohim. So if Yeshua was Elohim, and this man came and said, good master, why was Yeshua directing attention from himself to his heavenly father? The man called him good master, and he said, wait a minute now. If you call him me good master, and we know only one person is good, and that is Elohim, because in the creation when he made everything, the Bible said that Elohim said it was good, it was good, it was good. And then 
when he completed his creation, he said it was very good. So Yeshua is telling this man who came to him, why are you calling me good master? There is only one that is good, and that is the Father in heaven. So what Yeshua was saying, that if you see any goodness in me, you must see the Father in me. And because you see the Father in me, then you see the goodness of the Heavenly Father. And he went on to say to him, if you want to enter into life, do what? Keep the commandments. And we read in Genesis where he commanded the man to do something, and the man broke the commandment. But if he had kept the commandment, he would have had life. But now we are seeing that Yeshua is taking on where Adam and Eve stopped. They broke the command. Now this man want to know how to get into eternal life. And Yeshua tell him, well, if you want life, he said, keep the command. Keep the commandments. Whatever he tells us to do is what we are to do in order for us to do what? To have eternal life. Now, let us, <clears throat> let, let us look at this and, and understand that a part of eternal life is keeping the commandments. Now, here in this passage, Yeshua is pointing out to the one who asked him about having eternal life, and he told him if he will enter into uh, life, he must keep the commandments. Isn't this the same thing which Yah explained to the once holy couple? Same thing. From this, we should be able to see that if the serpent was cursed, then there was a command that was broken. If there was a command that was broken, then such a command was already in existence before the serpent was in, in existence. And if the command was in existence before the serpent was in existence, then Yah, who gave the command, also knew what the consequences of breaking it would be. Therefore, when our first parents broke the covenant, Yah already knew what was needed if they broke his covenant. They would need a sacrifice. All of Yah's foreknowledge and wisdom about his plan of salvation was all in place prior to man's transgression. He already knew that if his covenant was kept, there would be blessings and life. If his covenant was broken, there would be cursing and death. And in order for the curse to be removed and the blessing of life restored, a sacrifice was needed. Moreover, Yah, a loving Elohim, knew beforehand and prepared for it prior to its happening. What we are seeing is that Yah had already meted out if his covenant was kept or broken. He already knew the blessings. He already knew the cursing, and he already knew what the blessings were if it was obeyed and what the curses were if they were disobeyed. Now, we want to stop there. We want to stop there because we are showing that uh, the conception of his covenant was already put in place prior to him coming to this world and instituting the plan of salvation. So, uh, 
So you were saying that the coat of skins, uh, when he placed it upon Adam and Eve, was the preparing of the sacrificial system. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, now, did, did Satan know there was a plan of salvation in place? Well, I don't. He he may let me let me put it this way. Uh, he may have known, but uh, his main thing was that he wanted after he was cast out of heaven, he was cast out for the purpose of having to uh, try to, he was trying to take over the position mm-hmm. uh, of Yeshua. I think, you know, well, if we turn to a text, and then I'll explain it. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Or in chapter 14, uh, in verse number, let me see, we'll look at, um, uh, let me see, verse 12, as, Isaiah 14, 12, in, in, in the following verse, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, the son of the morning? How art thou cast down to the ground? which didst weaken the nation, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of Elohim. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. So in other words, he had in his mind, he wanted to be like the Most High. Mm-hmm. Now the only person that was like the Most High was Michael, they call him Michael. And we understand Michael to be Yeshua. And the name Michael means one like Elohim. So for Satan to say, I want to be like the Most High, mm-hmm. and there was only one person that was like him, which was El- which was his son, he is saying, I don't want to take so much the father's position, but I want to take uh, uh, the, his son's position. Now, uh, it may take a little research for you to understand this, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to put it out anyway. In verse 13 of, uh, of the 14th chapter of Isaiah, Notice what it says here. He said, for thou hast said in thine heart, mm-hmm. I will be, I will ascend into heaven. In other words, he may not have verbally expressed it, but Elohim knew what was in his heart, mm-hmm. knew what his emotions and his thinking. He knew all of that. Mm-hmm. And he said, you have said in your heart, I will exalt my throne above the stars of El. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. Okay. In his heart. He said, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. Now, Oftentimes, when we look at the mountain of the congregation, we just look at a mountain and maybe they have a congregation on it. Mm-hmm. But this word congregations means the Moed. He's going to sit on the mountain of the Moeds. Okay, now here's what I want you to see. The word Moed is where we get the word Moedim or the feast days, just like Passover, unleavened bread, the Sabbath and all of that. Mm-hmm. They come from the word congregation, which means the moiding, okay? So now you ask me the question, did he know about the plans of salvation? Mm-hmm. Well, I would think that if they had a Passover on earth, they must have had a Passover in heaven. Mm-hmm. And as they celebrated the feast days in heaven, they may not have been celebrated at that time with sin mm-hmm. because sin had not entered, but they were celebrating them. 
But then when sin entered into it, that, that did two things. That changed the use of the, of, of the feast days, and it also changed the use of the sanctuary because the sanctuary where they went to worship Elohim was a place that they came to give him praise, honor, and glory. Mm-hmm. And they came on certain days, which we feel are the feast days. Okay, but once sin came in, now they had to go to the sanctuary to give him praise, honor, and glory, but also now they had to atone for sins. And now the feast days that they now celebrated, they would have to put in there now the sacrificial system that was instituted. Now, while Satan was in there worshiping and thinking it is hard that he want to be like the most high, he was probably celebrating the Passover, which was all about the death of Yeshua, but he, he did not conceptualize that. So he, he may have known Mm-hmm. But but he didn't conceptualize the fact that as he sinned, that this would go into effect and it would affect him as well as the father's son. So mm-hmm. I think he had some knowledge, uh-huh. you know, because the Bible even says in the scriptures itself, it says that the devil knows the scriptures and he trembles. You know, he knows the scriptures. Wow. But for some reason, with the knowledge that he had, he still went against the command of Elohim and he was cast out of heaven. And with the knowledge that he had, he didn't look at it from the standpoint of that he should have backed off, but he continued to move forward. And as a result, he did what he did. Wow. Now, you, you said uh, when, when uh, after they had eaten the apple that Yah spoke to both the serpent, Eve, and Adam. Did he speak specifically to the serpent, or was he speaking to Satan, or was they one and the same? Well, uh, well, uh, they were different, but mm-hmm. the serpent was being used by Satan. But Elohim, even when Yeshua was on earth and some things was going down, I think, with Peter. Mm-hmm. And he and Yeshua told Peter, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Mm-hmm. In other words, he knew that Satan was trying to use Peter to stop him from going through the crucifixion. So Elohim knew, I mean, Yeshua knew that it wasn't Peter, it was somebody behind Peter, which was Satan. So it was the same thing in the Garden of Eden. Satan used the serpent, so the serpent became identified with him, even though they were separate individuals. So they were two different persons. So when he addressed the serpent, he was also addressing Satan for what he did. Okay. Uh, he had a question. It's emailed in. And it reads in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. Why does it say the woman has a seed when in the reproduction, the woman has an egg? Ken, uh, let me, <laughs> I'm going to answer you briefly. The reason why I'm smiling is you, <laughs> you kind of jumped ahead of my lectures. Um, <laughs> that, that, that will be brought out uh-huh. very I'm going to try to bring it about very succinctly and very clearly why that is so. But for the short-term answer is uh, that when we talk about the seed and the egg mm-hmm. is the fact that humanly, humanly it was that you had to have the sperm and the egg in order to produce another person, okay? Mm-hmm. And when we read in Genesis 3, 15, it talks about the seed of the woman. 
Okay, now, if it's talking about the seed of the woman, then it's no doubt talking about the fact that even though she has the egg, apparently at this point, the woman has received a, 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 a seed. Now, I'm on, but it had to come from somebody. And in my lectures or my discourses, we will be talking about how the woman who has the egg now has the seed. We'll be talking about that. And when we get to that, uh, we'll be emphasizing some of the dynamics of that. Uh -huh. And if at that point I do not answer your question, then you, you send that question back in and we'll deal with it again. Now this may be jumping ahead, but doesn't when seed is mentioned, it's the offspring, isn't it? Yeah, it's the offspring or the progeny or the uh, descendants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's talking about yeah, talking about the seed. And we'll, in order to understand the sacrificial system, we have to understand that seed. That's very important. Mm -hmm. And and we when we'll be we'll be dealing with that seed to really show where that seed came from, because it's so important that we understand where that seed came from. Because once we understand where that seed came from. We're going to understand a lot more about the sacrifice, just the lambs and the goats that were sacrificed. Okay. All right. I think with that, we will head to our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. Well, this week I want to talk about farming and the Bible. Because by the in the scriptures, Yah even had laws of farming. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn with me, to Exodus chapter 23, and we're going to read verses 10 and 11. Again, that's Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. And it reads, In six years thou shalt sow thy land, and shalt gather in the fruits thereof. But the seventh year thou shalt rest. But in the seventh year thou shalt let it rest, and lie still, that the poor of thy people may eat, and what they leave the beast of the field shall eat. In like manner thou shalt deal with thy vineyard and with thy olive yard. So, Pastor, with that, um, the scripture says we should, if we work in the land in the seventh year, let it rest. So letting it rest means we shouldn't mm -hmm. sow, we shouldn't plant any seeds or anything whatsoever. Right. <clears throat> yeah, he was, uh, <clears throat> well, we won't deal with that in two days, okay? Let's mm -hmm. go all the way back to Genesis. Okay. In Genesis. All right, in Genesis chapter 2, I believe, and we want to do the verse 15, Genesis 2, 15. The Bible says in verse 15 of the second chapter of Genesis, Yah Elohim took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress and to keep it. In other words, when Adam was created, he put him in the garden mm -hmm. to dress and to keep it. And we have to think, you know, when he put him in the garden, he had already given him ag agricultural laws of how to work the soil. Okay. And as you remember, at the end of the week, he told Adam uh, that he should rest just like Elohim rested on the seventh day. So that meant that every seventh day the soil rested. Okay, now when you read in in the text that you had in, in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 
chapter number uh, uh, 23, verse 11 to 10, again, it reiterates the agricultural laws that Elohim had talked to Adam when he first put him in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, not only that, but when we turn into Leviticus chapter 25, when you turn there, the Bible gives even further clarification of the agricultural laws. Notice what it says in, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1. It said, And Yah Elohim spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Shabbat unto Yah. He said, Every seventh day they should keep 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 a Sabbath. In verse 4 of the same, in, in verse <clears throat> In verse three, it says, six years shall thou sow the field, and the seven, and, and in six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard and gather in thy fruit thereof. And verse four says, but in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath of Yah. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. So what is he saying? He is saying every Seventh day, the land to rest, and every seventh year, it should rest. Mm -hmm. Yes, those are the agricultural laws. And if we had followed those laws today, our fruits, vegetables, and tomatoes, and collard greens, and cherry trees, and all of this, they would produce far more vital fruits if we had followed those agricultural laws. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why this planet is going to be destroyed because we are destroying nature by not following the agricultural laws. And so as a result, this is why we are not getting the produce from the earth as we should. We're not letting it rest because just as man was to rest, he said the soil in which you have come from, that need to rest every week and every seventh year, it should rest. Mm -hmm. And not only that, every uh, seven weeks of weeks of years, it should rest. Every 49th year, it should rest on the 50th year for the Jubilee. The land should rest. Mm -hmm. So he had land rest built within the covenant because you, if you notice what it says in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1, it said, And Yah spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. So Mount Sinai was when he gave him the covenant. So a part of Elohim's covenant that he gave to Adam as well as to us was to let the land rest every seventh day, every seventh year, and every seven weeks of years that it may rest. And this was built within the covenant that he gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. So that is so if that's part of the covenant then, if we mm -hmm. do not do those things uh in regards to farming, letting it rest, is that a sin? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's the uh, in other words, uh, when he commands and we mm -hmm. go against that command, just like Adam and Eve, that was one of the reasons why they had to be put out the garden, because now that they have violated the the rules, mm -hmm. then no doubt they were going to get weaker and weaker, and they probably wouldn't have been able to carry out the agricultural laws as they should. So he pulled them out of a perfect home and put them outside of the garden. And now we have to look forward to going back to the garden. And once we have been redeemed, these agricultural laws was, will be followed. So, yeah, it is a sin. It's an agricultural sin. This is what you call environmental sin. Mm -hmm. You're sinning against your environment. Mm -hmm. Just like the government says, one of the reasons why they want to go to electric vehicles and stuff like that, because they say they got too much pollution in the air. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But Elohim says when you overwork the land, you you you're not you're not treating the land as it should. Just if you can break man's law, you can also break my law of agriculture when you overwork the land. Wow. So now it also states uh, that whatever I guess is grown should be left for the poor. So if anything that still is produced, that should be what for the poor to eat and then whatever they leave for the beast and the animals to eat. Uh, yeah. Well, they had a built-in law that uh, <clears throat> that when you uh, harvest your land, mm-hmm. they said, oh, go over your land twice. In other words, if you shook off the olives of the tree and some olives are left, mm-hmm. you're not to shake it again. If you mm-hmm. went over your grape vines and you got all of the grapes and some was left, you don't go back and get them. Mm-hmm. Because those grapes that was left, he said, I want you to give that corner to the strangers or to the poor. Mm, okay. They had a right to that. It was just like a lot of parents, you know, when you have uh, a shortage and people start hoarding up all of the food and stuff mm-hmm. and putting it up. Well, Elohim, the way he, the way his, his, his program worked, you didn't have to hoard all of the food up. The way his program worked is if you had a lot of food in the groves or in the fields, mm-hmm. you would take that to live on, but you would leave the corner for the stranger. And the stranger knew that in in the Israelite community, that if they didn't have anything, they could go all they could go to other fields and take the corner. And when they take the corner, that was not stealing. Elohim had built that law in. And if we had similar laws like that, we would not have to rob people at gunpoint and try to take what they have. We would already have something for the poor. Yeah. We have things laid aside for it. I mean, we do have a lot of programs and stuff for the poor. Uh-huh. But what I'm saying is Elohim had already built it in that the poor and the stranger who didn't have as much as the person who had to feel, they could still go to those fields, but they could take the corner and feel perfectly welcome in doing that. So I just wonder, you know, with that, should we also be doing that in the businesses we own, in essence, preparing a corner for the poor and the needy and whatnot? Yeah, uh, we we should. One of my favorite authors, she she brings out, she says this. She said, uh, a lot of the illnesses in our society and stuff that when people need, we don't really have to come to church for it. She said in our private budgets, in the budgets that we have at home, mm-hmm. we should have built in our budget something for the poor. And if it's in reasonable means, we don't have to go to the church or anybody. It's already built in our budget. We can help them. Now, if wow. it's come a catastrophe that goes beyond our budget, then the church, if they see a devastating community, they can, they can all chip in from the church to do it. But individually, if we see somebody homeless or somebody in need, we should have something in our personal budgets of what you call the corner to be able to help them. Mm. Okay. Uh, We have a question that was emailed in, and it reads, Do we know when the Hebrews stop obeying Yah regarding the land resting every seven years? I don't don't, don't know if we can pinpoint... uh, Exactly, but a lot of lot of the uh, dis disobedience that uh, Israel had, mm-hmm. they 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 were they were they were having it 
uh, in different times, there were different times in which uh, they they would uh, experience not doing what he says. It, it was not just one time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the Bible pinpoints when they actually actually got started doing this, but it was over a period of time that they kept doing and going against the command of working the land that he had to send prophets. Now, I know Jeremiah, Jeremiah was one of the prophets that was telling them one of the reasons why you went into captivity is because you are working the land on the Shabbat. Mm. And so when they went into captivity, then, well, let me, let me see, can I get a text? Uh, they were not able to work the land. Okay, let me see. Uh, now, when you turn, let me see, I believe it's in the 25th chapter of the book of uh, Leviticus that we were dealing with earlier. And it speaks about that when you don't let the land rest as he should, then you were violating that command that that he had given and that the land would not produce as it should, okay? Let me see if I can find that particular portion. Uh, it was, I know, I know Jeremiah speaks about it, but it's, I think it was also here in this chapter as well. Let me see. Uh, let's see. Let me see. Yeah. Okay, well, let me just give you the gist of it. It was saying that uh, when you work on the Sabbath, mm-hmm. when you work the land on the Sabbath, it would not yield, and that eventually Elohim would take you into captivity, and when you took you into captivity, he would take you off of that land. Mm-hmm. And when he took you off of that land, then what would happen is all, all of the Sabbath, see, they went into captivity for 70 years down in Babylon. And when they went into that captivity, then they could not work the land because they was captives. Mm-hmm. And so that naturally meant because they could not work the land that the land would now get the Sabbath rest that it should have gotten when they had the land. And as a result, he gonna let that land rest and that land would be built up and to be able to replenish itself. <clears throat> but because they didn't do that, they 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 were taken in captivity. I mean, there were other things that they were doing, but this is one of the things that they were doing mm-hmm. that caused them to go into captivity because they were working the land, okay? I can't put my finger on it. Uh, I know it's there. Okay, but let, let's go over to Revelation. I think it was checks that I'm familiar with there. Uh, Revelation chapter 20. Okay, now, if you notice in Revelation chapter 20, the Bible says, let me see, let us read uh, in the... Uh, uh, in verse, uh, holy part. let's read, start with verse 7. It said, and when, well, I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit. 
uh, I want to deal with the millennium, one of the reasons why he's going to have the millennium. Okay, let's start with verse 3, I believe. Revelation chapter 20, verse 3. And he said he cast them into the bottom of the pit, talking about the devil and, you know, the devil here. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the millennium. He said, and he cast them into the bottom of the pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years be fulfilled. And after that, he must lose a little season. Okay, now, he's going to shut him up for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Now, that thousand years, what's going to happen? Well, during that thousand years, uh, now, the Bible says in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Yeshua and for the word of Elohim, and which had not worshipped the beast and his image, and neither received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and they reigned with uh, the Messiah a thousand years. Okay, now I want you to get the picture. Here it's talking about he's, he's going to change Satan on this earth for how long? A thousand years. But at the same time, the redeemed is going to be with the Messiah for a thousand years. And then he said the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years was finished. This is the first resurrection. So in other words, all of the dead unrighteous people, they're going to be dead for the thousand years. The saints are going to be with Messiah for a thousand years. And then Satan is going to be on the earth for a thousand years. Now, guess what? There ain't going to be no people on the earth to work to, 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 to work the soil. And Satan, who has been chained, he can't work the soil either. So for a thousand years, this world is going to be able to receive the Sabbath that the people who have been breaking it by working on the Sabbath and working the soil, then this earth is going to have a thousand years to keep all of the Sabbath that the people on earth should have been keeping, but they didn't. And so he's going to use that thousand years to let it rest. Wow. Okay. Well, Pastor, with that, can you take us to the throne as we get ready to close out this podcast for this week? Okay. I love and Father, we thank you again that we can congregate and we can discuss your word. And as we probe into the sacrificial system, oh, Heavenly Father, that we can see there was something that you laid out beforehand. And you give us implications of it in the scriptures. And as we continue to study it, help us to be able to absorb it in such a way that we can see all of the dynamics and how the plan of salvation works out. And that many of the questions that we may have may be answered. And the ones that are not answered, that you may bring it to our minds and give us the understanding of the capacity in which we can be able to understand it. And the things that we just totally cannot understand help us to still accept you by faith. Bless those who listen. Bless those of us who put this particular scenario together. And may we be able to apply the plan of redemption to ourselves in such a way that when the Messiah does come, we have walked in his command and done the things that he has asked us to do according to his covenant. And as we continue to be obedient to you, that we can get the blessings rather than being disobedient and get the curse. And in the end, may we have the eternal blessings of life. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. And amen. Amen. That is our podcast for this week. 
If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at thescienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. Be sure you return next Shabbat live at 3 p.m. as the pastor will continue with the science of the sacrifice part three. O ye seed of Yasharel, his servant, ye children of Yaakov, his chosen ones. He is Yahuwah Eleheinu. His judgments are in all the earth. Be ye mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Until next week, Shalom.